Hello and welcome to Half Lit History. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Kylie. And this is a show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago. And sometimes not so long. Uh, why are we robots? <laughs> because it is time to go back in time and robots do that. Okay, you weirdo. <laughs> what are we talking about today? Hopefully it is very monotone. Uh, no, it's really, really not. So good oh, luck with that, no. sir. This week, we are going to be talking about a classic conspiracy theory. Ooh. And it's not aliens or Bigfoot, although I am having some of my students do projects on those, which is very fun. I'm talking about the idea that Paul is dead. Who's Paul? Paul. Is it the, hi, I'm Paul from Jimmy Neutron? No, no, it is not that <laughs> Paul. It is Paul from the Beatles, a.k.a. Paul McCartney. Ah. Yes, the conspiracy theory that he's actually dead and was replaced. Wah, wah, wah. Mm, mm. I can't wait. Yeah, so a quick background on Sir James Paul McCartney, C-H-M-B-E. And if anyone's wondering what those things mean, C-H is the Order of the Companions of Honor. What? Yeah, so it's... It's basically the same thing as the Order of the British Empire, which is the other one, the MBE, is the Order of the British Empire, apparently. Although I don't know why those letters don't make sense to me, but it is. Okay. It is. Um, They're both, like, uh, rewards for contributions to the arts and sciences, and basically the only thing that I can tell is that the Order of the British Empire um, can be awarded to anyone who has made a significant achievement for the UK, so they don't have to be British, whereas the um, other one, the CH, the uh, or Companion of Honor, must be, British. must be a British citizen and living. And so, living. yeah, so it can't be posthumously awarded. Aha. If any British citizens out there know I'm wrong, let me know, but that's what I found. So, anyway, uh, James Paul McCartney was born on June 18th of 1942 in Liverpool, England. He taught himself piano, guitar, and songwriting as a teenager. He was also part of John Lennon's Skiffle group. Skiffle? Skiffle is apparently a kind of folk music. Okay. So the the Skiffle group was called the Quarrymen, and it was um, formed in 1957. And it was basically the precursor to the Beatles. It evolved into the Beatles um, in 1960 with, like, I think maybe two people got replaced because Lennon and McCartney were both in The Quarrymen. Ringo Starr and I think George Harrison were the additions that got switched out to become the Beatles. Interesting. From okay. what I understand. Yes. So they were widely regarded as the most influential band of all time, um, and they were integral to the development of the 1960s counterculture and popular music's recognition as an art form. Paul played bass guitar and shared primary songwriting and lead vocal duties with Lennon. Um, and one of the most successful composers and performers of all time, McCartney's known for his melodic approach to bass playing, versatile and wide tenor vocal range, which a natural tenor is pretty hard to come by, um, and his musical eclecticism. Um, so he explored styles ranging from pre-rock and roll pop to classical and um, a little bit of electronica. Fun fact. So after the Beatles disbanded, Paul debuted as a solo artist um, and then formed another band called The Wings with his first wife, Linda, and Denny Lane. Paul had written or co-written a record of 32 songs that have topped the Billboard Hot 100, which is a lot. Um, and as of 2009, had sales of 25.5 million RIAA certified units in the U.S. That seems like a big number. It seems like a very large number, yes. Um, his honors include two 
inductions into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, once as a member of the Beatles in 1988, and then again as a solo artist in 1999, um, an Academy Award, a Primetime Emmy Award, 18 Grammy Awards, an appointment as a member of the Order of the British Empire in 1965, and a knighthood in 1997 for services to music. That's a lot of accolades, um, and he has been a very influential musician, wouldn't you say? Yes, I can yeah. see why maybe someone would have replaced him with a robot. Uh, not a robot, all right. <laughs> I'm trying oh, to dear. connect our weird opening back to the conspiracy. No, our weird opening was just, you're crazy, so... <sighs> I love you anyway, uh-huh. but you are still crazy. Okay. So it is what it is. Um, so according to this urban legend slash cons- conspiracy theory, Paul McCartney actually died in a car accident on November 9th, 1966. And to spare the public from grief, the surviving Beatles replaced him with a McCartney lookalike. So there's some dude, according to this theory, who looked just like Paul McCartney out there pretending to be him and apparently can sing just like him. Which play seems the instruments to be that he can just play. Just like him, which seems suspicious to me, but hey. Anyway, they then proceeded to convey this secret through clues that were hidden in their music and cover artwork. Um, to me, that seems really to kind of defeat the purpose of having hidden and covered up the death, but, you know, yeah. not my choice. <laughs> So meanwhile, clue hunting became infectious, and by October of 1969, it had become an international phenomenon. Luckily for Paul, and presumably the rest of the band, the rumors died down some after a Life magazine um, article was published from an interview with him in November of 1969, but they never fully went away completely. As we're talking about it today. Correct, sir. Um, And I'm a believer. Oh, dear. So how did this very elaborate theory get to be so prolific? It started with a rumor circulating around London in early 1967 that Paul McCartney had been killed in a traffic accident while driving along the M1 motorway on January 7th. I have no idea what the M1 motorway is, but it seems to be referenced a lot in various British media. So I'm assuming it's a big highway? Probably. Some some sort? Yeah. All right. I feel like I've seen it before, and I feel like it's a very big circle. I think you might be right. Yeah. I think you might be right. I know it's referenced in Good Omens because one of, I think, the one that's played by... um, David Tennant. David Tennant. Crowley. Crowley, yes. That's the word I was looking for. Um, Does something to it and, like, completely backs it up somehow. I think that's the big circle. Yeah, I think it's the big circle, yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. It's like a giant, We're probably giant completely rotary. wrong. That's probably a different M something that's <laughs> very important. <laughs> the only other M thing I know of is M6, which has nothing to do with traffic. Or does it? Well, maybe. <laughs> anyway, we are so off topic. Anyway. Okay. So this, room, this rumor was rebutted in the February issue of The Beatles Book. Uh, but by 1967, the Beatles were known for sometimes including backmasking in their music. So analyzing their lyrics for hidden, me- hidden meaning had become a popular trend in the U.S. In November of 1968, their self-titled double LP, which was known as the White Album, was released containing the track Glass Onion. Lennon wrote the song to confuse people who read too much into the lyrical meaning behind the Beatles songs, which apparently was annoying to him. Um, so he dismissed any deep meaning to the mu- mysterious lyrics, saying, quote, I threw the line in, the walrus was Paul, just to confuse everybody a bit more. It could have been the fox terrier is Paul. I mean, it's just a bit of poetry. 
I was having a laugh because there's been so much gobbledygook about Pepper. Play it backwards and you stand on your head and all that. End quote. So, yeah, I love that he said gobbledygook, too. I don't uh, know why. I just found that really funny. So, Well, Lennon, one, one other thing before you continue on. Um, anyone who disliked the movie Glass Onion, you should listen to the words that Kylie just said. <laughs> he made a song called Glass Onion specifically to make fun of people who were looking into what the meaning could have been. Uh-huh. That was the entire point of the Glass Onion movie that just came out, the Knives yep. Out sequel. Yep. I was seeing a lot of people online not getting that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. So Lennon was mildly annoyed that people were like trying to read so much into things. And he's like, there's there's no meaning behind it. I don't know what you're doing and why you're doing this. But here, have some nonsense that I've made up yep. just to like mess with you. Um, so Anyways, arguably, you may continue. What I would have done also. Yep. <laughs> so unfortunately for them, the rumors were really only just getting started. On September 17th of 1969, Tim Harper, an editor of the Drake Times Delphic, which was the student newspaper of Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, Des Moines? Des Moines, shit! <laughs> Des Moines, yes! <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> we haven't had a really good word screw up in a long time, like probably for other languages and everything, but like I've that one's our own turf. We we should know that. I've literally never seen it written before. <laughs> I've heard it said. I've literally never seen it written and like said at the same time. So I had literally no idea that A, it's two different words. I had no clue. Uh-huh. Clearly, I don't spend any time looking or thinking about Iowa. So, shocking. And back to the show. Anyway, so, so yeah, Tim Harper, editor of the Drake Times Delphic, um, the student newspaper of Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, hmm, uh, published an article titled, quote, Is Beetle Paul McCartney Dead? The article addressed a rumor being circulated on campus that cited clues from recent Beatles albums, including a message interpreted as, quote, turn me on dead man, which was heard when the white album track Revolution 9 was played backwards. Also referenced was the back cover of Sgt. Pepper, where every Beatle, except for McCartney, is photographed facing the viewer, and the front cover of the Magical Mystery Tour, which depicts one unidentified band member in a differently colored suit from the other three. Harper later said that it had become the subject of discussion among students at the start of the new academic year, and he added, quote, a lot of us, because of Vietnam and the so-called establishment, were ready, willing, and able to believe just about any sort of conspiracy, which, in my opinion, tracks. Like, kind of looking for any sort of escape from what was a really shitty time. Yep. Now we've just gotten to the point where when the government does something really terrible, we decide that, yep, that's the government for you. Yeah, we just kind of accept it and move on, which yep. probably isn't great either. But yep. anyway. <clears throat> and half the things that we imagine as conspiracy these days turn out to be real. Yikes. So Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> in late September of 1969, the Beatles released the album Abbey Road as they were in the process of disbanding. Um, the co- the album cover where Paul is walking barefoot. So that's this is the one where he's they're yep. walking across the street. Yeah. Um, on October 10th, the Beatles press officer Derek Tyler responded to the rumor, stating, "Quote: Recently, we've been getting a flood of inquiries asking about reports that Paul is dead. We've been getting questions like that for years, of course. 
But in the past few weeks, we've been getting them at the office and home night and day. I'm even getting telephone calls from disc jockeys and others in the United States, end quote. So as the band was breaking up with John Lennon's private announcement that he was leaving the group, disagreement over the choice of business manager and the recent birth of Paul's daughter, Mary, Paul had withdrawn from public life to focus on his family, which likely didn't help to stop rumors since he kind of was... MIA a little bit. Yep, especially if the rumors were just like hitting a peak that they uh-huh. thought that they were going to temper and they didn't. Yeah, nah, yeah, it didn't work out that way. Um, so on October 12th, 1969, a caller to Detroit radio station WKNR-FM told disc jockey Russ Gibb about the rumor and its clues. Gibb and other callers then discussed the rumor on air for the next hour, during which Gibb offered further potential clues of his own. Two days later, University of Michigan student Fred Labor wrote a satirical review of Abbey Road for the Michigan Daily Newspaper under the headline, McCartney Dead, New Evidence Brought to Light. It identified various clues to McCartney's alleged death on Beatles album album covers, particularly on the Abbey Road sleeve, apparently. That's the thing that the the record goes in, right? The sleeve? I would assume so. I think so. I, I, I would assume so. that, like, if it's a uh, if it's a vinyl, yeah, like I think the maybe the vinyl, okay, so like that, like the, sleeve. the holder thing, okay, yeah, because I know you like slide the vinyl into it. That's that not like sense. typical of other CD distribute. Yeah, I don't think there were CDs at that point. No, there weren't CDs at that point. Yeah, yeah, okay, so yeah, like that's this a holder sleeve. thingy. Okay, yeah. cool. I just was like, I don't actually know what that is. <laughs> Um, so Labor later said that he had invented many of the clues in his article and was astonished when the story was picked up by newspapers across the United States. So good job spreading misinformation, my friend. Honestly, very good job. That's the kind of misinformation that we can spread and be happy about. Well, my next sentence is that is not a mark of a good digital citizen. It's not. But also, it's kind of funny and harms no one. Well, I mean, except for poor Paul, who has people thinking he's an imposter. Nah. Nah. Okay, well, whatever. Uh, We can agree to disagree. (laughs) (laughs) So WKNR fueled the rumor further with its two-hour program, The Beatle Plot, which first aired on October 19th. This show has been called infamous, a fraud, and a mockumentary, and brought enormous worldwide pop publicity to Gibb and WKNR. The story was soon taken up by more mainstream radio stations in the New York area, WMCA and WABC. In the early hours of October 21st, WABC disc jockey Roby Young discussed the rumor on air for over an hour before being pulled off the air for breaking the format. Apparently you can do that, where like they'll like just yank, turn you off. Yeah, from, like, I mean, the the thing, radio you... stations have standards and contracts that you agree to, and like yeah, you have this sense. much time to do this thing, and you will do this thing at this time. Radio is a very tight knit like yeah. operation. Yeah, whereas like podcasting is very like you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as you put like like if you're explicit or something, you put explicit and don't. It's because it's yeah. not live. Yeah, and it's not being syndicated by a large company, which mm-hmm. is what radio is. Yeah, so. that makes sense. All right. At that time of night, WABC's signal covered a wide listening area and could be heard in 38 U.S. states and at times in other countries, too. And although the Beatles press office denied the rumor, McCartney's atypical withdrawal from public life contributed to this escalation. So WMCA dispatched Alex Bennett to the Beatles' Apple Corps headquarters in London to continue the station's coverage. There he interviewed Ringo Starr and said, quote, if people are 
are going to believe it, they're going to believe it. I can only say it's not true. Just stating the obvious. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. So arguably, it didn't really do much to waylay people's rabid imaginations, though. Um, in a radio interview with John Small of WKNR, Lennon said that the rumor was insane, but good publicity for Abbey Road. Yeah. <laughs> hey. Um, on Halloween night, 1969, WKBW in Buffalo, New York, broadcast a program titled Paul McCartney is Alive and Well. Maybe. Yeah. Which analyzed Beatles lyrics and other clues. The WKBW DJs concluded that the Paul is Dead hoax was fabricated by Lennon. Oh. So they're claiming Lennon started this whole thing. Well, that's a fun I twist. I know. So by the end of October, numerous other artists had tried to capitalize on this phenomena. These included The Ballad of Paul by The Mystery Tour, Brother Paul by Billy Shears, and The All-Americans. Oh, Billy Shears and The All-Americans. So Long Paul by Warbly Finster, um, which was a pseudonym for Jose Feliciano. Uh. <laughs> I know, right? Um, and... Zacharias and his tree peoples, we're all pallbearers, part one and two. We're all pallbearers. Yuck, yuck, I know. Isn't that awful? (laughs) There was also a song titled St. Paul by Terry Knight that was adopted by radio stations as a tribute to the late Paul McCartney, um, which seems a little too on the nose for me. So supporters of this theory maintain that Paul had an argument with the rest of the band on November 9th, 1966, during a recording session for Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band and drove away angry. He was then distracted by a meter maid and didn't see that the lights had changed, crashed, and was decapitated. Yeah. Um, According to this theory, there are hints to all of these in various songs the Beatles recorded after his quote-unquote death, including Lovely Rita, the meter maid, A Day in the Life, him crashing, and Don't Pass Me By, the decapitation. Um, A funeral service for Paul was held with eulogies by George, hinted at in uh, the song Blue Jay Way, and Ringo, the song Don't Pass Me By, followed by a procession, Abbey Road's front cover, um, with Lennon as the priest officiating his funeral and burying him, the alleged I buried Paul statement in the Strawberry Fields Forever song. (laughs) To spare uh, spare the public from grief or simply as a joke, the surviving Beatles replaced him with the winner of a McCartney lookalike contest. This was made easier by the Beatles' recent retirement from live performances, as well as their decision to change up their image for the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band cover. You know why I wouldn't believe this story now? There was one thing you just said that just shattered my reality of this being possible. Yeah. Or maybe it enforces it. I don't know. But... So there's many times where celebrities enter lookalike contests for themselves mm-hmm. and don't get picked first. Yep. I'm not sure if this shatters or enforces the belief that this could be possible. Well, my question is just more of like, how do you hold a lookalike contest for McCartney and no one knows about it? And also, how could you hold a lookalike contest for McCartney, but also the person who looks the most like him is capable of all the skills? Like we were right, talking right, about right. Earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's the question. I didn't Adele do one of those where she like crashed like a. Was it like a yeah, sing cra- like Adele or something like that? It, it was like a, a sing like, but everyone was also like dressed up. Yeah. like it was just like Adele impersonators. Yeah, and she went to an Adele impersonation thing, and then also Hugh Jackman did it. Yep, for yep. Uh, best Wolverine lookalikes. Oh my and gosh, I forgot win. about that. Yep. yep, yep, that's so funny. That's yeah. So that yeah, also for me, that kind of like ruins it a little bit. No, um, I think I've decided it enforces. Really? Okay. Yeah, All right. Because All right. if people can't tell the living celebrity. From fair, a person a right next to them, right? 
it enforces it. But yeah. the but the fact that it just came from a lookalike contest would be pretty far fetched for like obtaining the right skills. Right, I agree. Unless it was like a talent contest. But I anyways, anyway, we digress. We're doing so, a lot of that this episode. It's I know. fun. Um, so as for the stand-in, some claim that he was quote an orphan from Edinburgh named William Campbell whom the Beatles then trained to impersonate McCartney, while others contended that the man's name was William Shears Campbell, later abbreviated to Billy Shears, who I think was one of the songs earlier that I mentioned. Oh. Um, Yeah, Brother Paul by Billy Shears and the All-American. Anyway, I just found my own level of conspiracy theory here. Moving on. Um, So his name was abbreviated to Billy Shears, and the replacement was... Um, instigated by Britain's MI5 out of concern for the severe distress that McCartney's death would have caused the Beatles' audience, which at this point was vast. So with the second theory, the surviving Beatles were said to have felt extremely guilty about the deception, so they left messages in their music and album artwork to communicate the truth to their fans. So this version is saying that, like, basically the government was like, you know, you need to replace him. Um, But the band felt bad about it, so they were like, we're going to leave some hints and clues in different places. Um, So dozens of supposed clues have been discovered by fans over the years. These include messages perceived when listening to songs being played backwards and symbolic interpretations of both lyrics and album cover imagery. Two frequently cited examples are the suggestions that the words I buried Paul are spoken by Lennon in the final section of the song Strawberry Fields Forever, which I mentioned earlier, which the Beatles recorded in November and December of 1966. So that would have been like right after this whole um, conspiracy accident happened. Mm -hmm. Um, Lennon later said that the words were actually cranberry sauce. But, you know, who can actually confirm that? Other than the person who said the words. Anyway, the other frequent clue is that the words number nine, number nine in Revolution 9 from the White Album became turn me on, dead man, turn me on, dead man when played backwards. Interesting. Mm -hmm. A similar reversal at the end of I'm So Tired, another White Album track, yielded Paul is dead man, miss him, miss him, miss him. I tried listening to a couple of these online and I can definitely see how that you could hear those things especially if you're already going into it like expecting to hear that kind of thing but also it could it very easily could be something completely you know it's a word said backwards yeah so also i was just looking up who billy shears is yeah billy shears is ringo star uh it is his it is his part in sergeant pepper lonely hearts club band and it is uh, it is uh, the one and only Billy Shears and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band is part of the intro to the song, of which Ringo Starr is the the person playing Billy Shears. Oh my gosh! And then there was also the movie Sgt. Yep. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Billy Shears was played by Peter Frampton, who is a very oh. prestigious guitar player. I was going to say that name sounds familiar. <laughs> But yeah, Billy Shears ain't a real person, nope. so whoever used that to make that song, that was just a, an alias when they made it. That's so funny. And that alias was probably Ringo. Probably. That yeah. would not be surprised. I mean, I bet if I did an episode on Ringo, you probably would find that, that would be his yep. his like other sideband or something like that. Anyway. But yeah, I was like, if Billy Shears is a real person, I mean, <laughs> we, can, we can see if he looks anything like Paul McCartney. Dun, and it dun, turns dun. out that uh, it is just other members of the Beatles. That tracks. Yeah. Um, So another piece of evidence, quote unquote evidence, 
that's frequently used to support the theory that Paul is dead is the album cover of Abbey Road. The image of the four members of the band walking across the road is proposed to depict a funeral procession. Lennon is dressed in white, and it's said to symbolize the heavenly figure. Star is dressed in black, symbolizing the undertaker. George Harrison is in denim, representing the gravedigger. And McCartney, barefoot and out of step with the others, symbolizes the corpse. So, you know, someone's reading a lot into this, I think. Sure. Um, Another part of the image is the white VW bug in the background with a license plate containing the characters LMW. 281F, which was mistakenly read as 28IF. So the 28IF is supposed to represent Paul's age if he had been alive, although he was 27 when the album was actually recorded and released. So like 28IF. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So he like would have been 28 if he were still alive when the album came out, I guess, except he would have actually been 27. (laughs) So... (laughs) While the LMW was said to stand for Linda McCartney Weeps or Linda McCartney Widow. Okay. Except that Paul and the then Linda Eastman had not yet met in 1966, the year of Paul's alleged death. Oh. Womp, womp. Yep. Um, And then lastly, Paul is holding a cigarette in his right hand, except Paul McCartney's left-handed. Therefore, it has to be a sign that he had to be an imposter. Yep. Although, I think that um, the handedness of your imposter if you're pretending to be someone as famous as Paul McCartney you would have to know that they're left-handed like you can't pretend to be someone and then just go around doing everything with your opposite hand like I think that the average item. person wouldn't notice mm, fair. but the the dead ringer forgive my language for the imposter being an imposter is handwriting you can you can tell so mm. if that person were to sign, even if they had a perfect Paul McCartney signature down, mm-hmm. if they did it with their left hand, an authenticator would be able to tell that it was written with another hand. Even if it yeah. was a perfect representation of the previous signature, you can tell which hand it is just because your hand would slide in different ways. Yeah. Yep. There would be like minute like smudging and stuff yep. if you're left-handed versus right-handed. Yeah, that's true. Interesting. So, obviously, the Beatles press office denied the rumors, duh, um, issuing statements deeming it, quote, a load of old rubbish and saying that, quote, the story has been circulating for about two years. We get letters from all sorts of nuts, but Paul is still very much with us. So, on October 24th, 1969, BBC Radio reporter Chris Drake was granted an interview with McCartney at his farm. Paul said that the speculation was understandable, given that he normally had done an interview a week to ensure he remained in the news. Paul was allegedly agreed to the interview, quote, in hopes that people hearing his voice would see the light, but it didn't really work out that way. In another event, Paul was actually secretly filmed while working on his farm by a CBS News crew. Um, At the time, Paul was unshaven and scruffy looking as he and Linda had been filming a promotional clip for Something, um, which I think is a song that they did together. So when a reporter and a photographer from Life magazine showed up unexpectedly, Paul was a little irate. Which is my favorite word of word. I know it is. Mm-hmm. It's what she starts with every time. Yep. He apparently swore at the photographer, threw a bucket of water on them, and was captured on film attempting to hit the photographer. So fearing that the photos would damage his image, McCartney then approached the pair and agreed to pose for a photo with his family and answer the reporter's questions in exchange for the roll of film containing the offending pictures. Huh? Which, smart. That would not have been great for his image. But also they must have gotten out if we know about it. 
Right. Um, so following the publication of this article and photo, the rumor of Paul's death began to decline a little bit. So despite this, record sales for the Beatles catalog album saw a significant increase, at least in part attributed to the publicity around the rumor. The rumor benefited the commercial performance of Abbey Road in the U.S., where it comfortably outsold all of the band's previous albums. Uh, apparently, us Americans really love a conspiracy theory. Yes. Not surprised. So much so that Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour, both of which had been off the chart since February, re-entered the Billboard Top LPs chart, peaked at number 101 and number 109, respectively. So they came basically out of retirement, went back in, and then went out again because (laughs) Abbey Road did so well. Nice. (laughs) So a television special dedicated to Paul is Dead was broadcast on WOR in New York on November 30th and was structured like a mock trial titled Paul McCartney, The Complete Story, Told for the First and Last Time. It was set in a courtroom, and it was hosted by celebrity lawyer F. Lee Bailey, who cross-examined Labor, the Michigan student who wrote the satirical article in the beginning, Gibb, the disc jockey who aired the call about the conspiracy, and other proponents of the theory, and then heard opposing views from witnesses, quote-unquote witnesses, such as McCartney's friend Peter Asher and Alan Klein, and it was left up to the viewer to come to a conclusion. Reportedly, before they went on air, Labor told Bailey that his article had been intended as a joke, to which Bailey sighed and replied, quote, Well, we have an hour of television to do. You're going to have to go along with this. <laughs> so if that's not the response of a lawyer who has had too many wild cases, I don't know what is. Yep. For reference, Bailey was part of the O.J. Simpson's dream team and was a lawyer for the Boston Strangler. Oh, geez. So he's seen his fair share of... Wild trials, I yeah, think. yeah. <laughs> Jeez, I know. I looked that up and was like, "Oh my gosh, uh-huh. <laughs> this poor man!" <laughs> and now you're on TV for Paul is dead, <laughs> an yes. obvious hoax, right? Exactly. So Paul re- returned to London in December of 1969 and began recording a solo record titled McCartney without any of his band bandmates' knowledge. So just was like snuck back in, was like, "I'm going to record this album, and I'm not going to tell any of you." Um, It was kept a secret until shortly before its release in April of 1970 and basically led to the um, announcement of the Beatles' breakup. Yeah. Oops. So why did people believe that one of the biggest music names of the time could have died and have it so thoroughly covered up? Because it's fun. That. But also, (laughs) one thing to remember is the time period. Looking at it from 2023, it's easy to pass judgment, but his popularity was understandable in a climate where citizens were faced with conspiracy theories insisting that the assassination of beloved President JFK in 1963 was, in fact, a coup d'etat. Um, if the president of the United States could be assassinated by his own people, theoretically the Secret Service, and have that be covered up, why couldn't a celebrity? Yep. Now, the Paula's Dead theory serves more as a genuine folktale of the mass communications era, according to author Nicholas Schaffner, who also described it as, quote, the most monumental hoax since Orson Welles' War of the Worlds broadca- broadcast persuaded thousands of panicking New York, New Jerseyites that Martian invaders were in the vicinity. Hilarious, because it wasn't even intended to be a hoax. Yep. It was just... People turned on the radio radio too late and missed the part where it said, this is all fiction. And then panic ensued. So, yeah, this historian described it as the most monumental hoax since War of the Worlds, which literally caused, like, half a city to to panic. Well, I think also that the widespread panic is exaggerated, that it wasn't actually that widespread. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, like, it's easy, like, if some people start panicking for other people to get roped up into it, even yeah. if they don't really know what's Mob happening. mentality. Yeah, it's really easy to, like, persuade people of something and then get them to go along with it. Also, I don't think even from our 2023 lens that we can really uh, <laughs> diss on this. <laughs> Because uh, Avril Lavigne is another oh, one. Oh yeah, maybe I should do that another time. Yeah, that might depending on if that conspiracy theory is old enough. But that oh, is still a believed thing. Yes, there are still people who believe that Avril Lavigne is not actually Avril Lavigne. Yep, I forgot it's, about that. It's interesting though because like a lot of the explanation for the Avril Lavigne thing is that her music style changed drastically, mm-hmm. but then it like tried to be what the old one was so it was like oh it felt like someone new was adjusting to a role that they were given but like none of that came up for the Paul McCartney one right yeah. everyone just immediately assumed he was the most perfect impersonator ever whereas like right. part of the reason for the Avril Lavigne one is that it sounded like she shifted in her right. style and I mean it couldn't possibly be growth as a human. No, never. That would be too it's not, obvious. People don't have different styles no, as they evolve not as artists. At all. Never. Never. No. <laughs> I'm anyway. sure our first episode sounds exactly as put together or different as this episode does. Oh dear God. Nobody go back and check, please. Don't do it. Don't, don't do, do it. it. <laughs> anyway, um, so Ian McDonald in his book Revolution in the Head. Uh, says that the Beatles were partly to blame for this phenomenon due to their incorporation of, quote, random lyrics and effects, particularly in the White Album track Glass Onion. We're back to which Glass Onion. Which was intentional. Yep. So. Yep. In which Lennon invited clue hunting by including references to other Beatles songs, which, again, he's already said that he did that on purpose because it was supposed to be making fun of them. Um, so McDonald groups this theory with the psychic endemics Oh, epidemics that were encouraged by the rock audience's use of hallucinogenic drugs and which escalated with Charles Manson's homicidal interpretation of the White Album and later Mark David Chapman's religion-motivated murder of Lennon in 1980. Yep. Womp womp. So additionally, this was a generation that was distrustful of the media following the Warren Commission's report, duh, and this theory was able to thrive amid a climate informed by quote, the credibility gap of Lyndon Johnson's presidency, the widely circulated rumors after the Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy assassinations, as well as attacks on the leading media sources by the Yippies and Spiro Agnew. So basically, (laughs) just conspiracy and, like, attack on media credibility from, like, the top down made people very, very distrustful. Which a lot of which we now know you can attribute to the FBI. (laughs) Shh. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway. So Paul It doesn't even go as high as the CIA. It's it's the FBI did a lot of this. Yeah, so. uh, not not surprised by that. Um did did we ever cover MK Ultra? Yes, we did we do did. MK Ultra. We did yeah, MK yeah. Ultra. So like the fact that they could spread disinformation should not be shocking to anyone at all, ever. Yeah. <laughs> so also I don't remember if it was part of the MK Ultra one, but like we've definitely at least mentioned the the bombings of what was it, Philly and the, uh, the Black Panther? I think so, yes. I think we I think we referenced it on the Juneteenth episode. Yeah, I th- yes. I think we did. Yeah. So yeah. the the FBI is plenty yeah. capable of uh yeah. doing this. I really want to do um the Tulsa massacre. Yeah. But also it's gonna be like the most oppressing episode ever. Uh-huh. So we'll 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 see how that goes. <laughs> Someday, maybe. We'll see. Um, I need to be in the right mindset for it. Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, we're almost dead. So, 
we're almost done. Not we're almost dead. Did you say dead? I said we're almost dead. Anyway. We've been replaced. Okay. Next episode. The... Can you find the hidden secrets? <laughs> Run that backwards. What the fuck? Jesus. Okay. So Paul is Dead has continued to inspire analysis into the 21st century, including published studies, documentaries, and mockumentaries. Writing in 2016, Beatles biographer Steve Turner said, quote, the theory still has the power to flare back into life. Um, he cited a 2009 Wired Italia magazine article that featured an analysis by two forensic research consultants who compared select photographs of McCartney taken before and after his alleged death by measuring features of his skull yeah. from pictures. Yeah. So that's fun. Very highly reliable science yes, there. Yes, very much so. It's not like it hasn't been disproven. <clears throat> anyway, according to the scientists' findings, the man shown in the post-November 1966 images was not the same. Dun, dun, dun. So I will leave it up to you, dear listener, to decide if you think Paul McCartney died in 1966 or if he's still alive and kicking and making wonderful music. And we hope that he is still alive and kicking and that we haven't just predicted his downfall like oh. we did the downfall of E3 on our other podcast. Jonathan, no. Jonathan, we shall no. find out. Don't do this. <laughs> no. It also occurs to me that I don't think I technically said what the event is. Um... The event is from April 24th, 1969, where Paul McCartney goes on record to say that there's no truth to the rumors that he's dead. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, we never actually did no, do the No, I never actually said topic. it. Yeah, I realize that, like, right now. <laughs> but yeah, he goes on record to say, I'm alive. Thank you very much. Cool. Pretty much. Yeah. So are we done? That is it. That is all I have. So it sounds like y'all should stick around for fun facts while I do a quick call to action. The call to action being uh, you can find us on on anything at Halfwit History. Uh, We have our website, halfwitpodcast.com, where we Mm -hmm. push all of our content there. Yes. Any projects we may work on. There may be more coming. I don't know. I don't know what the status of our other conspiracy theories is i don't know we're working we're working we got many irons in the fire they just need to uh what what is that face for have you not heard that no i've heard it but for a second i thought you were pulling a a, your mom thing where she mixes up her idioms no but no you're right that is right Uh that was it it's fine we're fine i'm fine (laughs) uh for social media yeah you just find us at halfway history we we may or may not use I'm yep. going to steal that line from NADPOD. Yeah. <laughs> social medias we may or may not use. Um, yep. Just because social media world is terrible right now. Just bad. Yikes. So I don't know where we're going to end up as a home, but you can always find out where we are on our website. Yes. Our website is the best place. And yeah. You, yep. And uh, thank you to the Fisherman for the use of our theme song, Another Day. You can find a link to their SoundCloud down in our show notes. Yep. I almost forgot where they were located. but. Yep. <laughs> Down, down, down. Down, down. Okay. Now it's time for fun facts. Fun facts. So, we are going to go all the way back to... Oh, this is a fun one. Um, We're going to go back to April 28th of 2004, where Shrek the Sheep from Terrace Central Otago, New Zealand, is finally shorn on live TV <laughs> after six years of avoidance. <laughs> The fleece weighed 27 kilograms, or for us non-metric people, 60 pounds. That's so much wool. And I remember that one happening. Imagine wearing 60 pounds worth of clothing. It's quite a bit. That's too much. Anyways, what's your fun fact, Kylie? Let me see. 
Um, Ah, yes. Okay. So I will do, my fun fact is from April 30th, 1952, Mr. Potato Head becomes the first toy advertised on television. Wow. I thought that was fun. Yeah, that is fun. Especially now that, like, the toy industry is so heavily linked with the television industry. Exactly, yeah. It's interesting. I didn't realize it was as late as 1952. Yeah. Or that it was Mr. Potato Head. No, that kind of makes sense to me, because it's like 1952, and then they probably had, like, a few years before, I think it was the 60s, when... He-Man and Transformers yeah. and G.I. Joe. Yeah. Like, those were TV shows made to sell toys. Yeah. Yep. That makes sense. Yep. Cool. Right. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, we hope you uh, enjoyed yourself. And as always, I'm your halfwit. And I'm your historian. And we hope you listen next time. Bye.